First Timothy is where we'll be today. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's totally great, fine, wonderful. We've got Bibles for you, and you can go ahead and turn there. I will be on page 991 right there. So First Timothy is where we will be. I'm also actually going to put the whole thing up. So if you're just a listener, if that's kind of how you're geared, uh, we'll actually have the text up here in a, in a minute as well. But let me give you a little bit of a lowdown of what's happening in First Timothy. I, I don't want to go into that in any kind of great depth or anything, but the letter, it is a letter written by Paul, the great influencer for Christianity. Um, and he wrote it to his protege, Timothy. And we're looking at the first chapter of this, of this, of this letter, and so we're getting some of the problems, like why Paul wrote it and what it's all about, and some of the people who he's trying to correct because there's something that's kind of gone sideways. And so let me put the text up here, and we will, uh, I'll read it, and you can follow along in, in your book or up here, however it is that you choose to follow along. He says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from, uh, from God, that is, by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making such confident assertions. Now, this is kind of where Bible reading can either be tricky or boring. I don't know what you feel when you read these things, but whichever one it is, it can kind of be there because there are people we're not familiar with. We're not familiar with the story behind the letter, like why Paul is writing it. We're not familiar even necessarily with the controversies. Paul doesn't even get into it specifically. He just calls it vain discussions. And that makes it hard because who talks like that, right? When's the last time you said, well, this is a vain discussion. I'll see myself out, right? No, nobody talks like that. And so the Bible is a bit strange when we come to it. And I just want to acknowledge that up front in case you're sort of new to the Bible. But what you can pick up probably very quickly is that there is some kind of conflict. There's a controversy. There is an issue. There's a problem that has appeared in this area. And Paul is commissioning Timothy to go and take care of that problem. Now, what is the problem? The problem is that there are people, brothers and sisters in Christ, perhaps even teachers, who have gotten sucked into things. They're having discussions about myths and genealogies. We might speculate about what that is, but we might say at the very, very outset, it seems as though there is a very busy group of people who are busy about the wrong things. We know that they're busy because Paul wrote a letter about them. And if you remember with me, it is very expensive to write a letter. It's not like firing off an angry email. You can do that easily today in 30 seconds and then regret it after, right? But for Paul, he had to have money because you had to buy paper, which was expensive, and ink, which was expensive, and, and oftentimes somebody to, to, to a stenographer, right, to write down the letter for you, which was expensive. And then you had to find somebody who could take a month off of work and take your letter to where they needed to be and back again, right? It is expensive, which tells us that whoever it is that Paul is talking about, they're big news. They're very busy. They're very occupied 
with these arguments and these teachings and these myths and these genealogies and these vain discussions, they're very, very busy. But they are busy about the wrong kinds of things. And I relate to that because I also feel very busy. Can I get a witness? Everybody feel very busy. I feel very, very busy. And yet I suspect that I might not be busy about the right kind of things. I, I find myself doing a lot of things, but I don't feel myself accomplishing a lot of things. Ever feel that way? Like, you know you've been busy all day, and somebody, you come home at night, or maybe you run into somebody and say, how was your day? And you're like, I know I did something all day long, because I'm very tired, and I've been to like 15 different places, but what was it I did again? Does anybody resonate with that? We are so busy, but we're so uncertain about why we are busy, and what we are busy about. In fact, what I've found about myself is that as I busy myself with my, with my task, once that task is completed, I have no time to feel relief about that task being completed because I'm immediately, immediately on to the next task. Anybody else? And if I'm not immediately like two steps into my very next task, I'm already thinking about the task that's coming up, which means I'm constantly preoccupied. Which means that the problems that are going to exist in my life, in my time, in my space, these problems haven't even emerged yet, and yet they've already found their way into my brain to haunt me. Which is a way of saying that preoccupied is just a nice term for pre-worried. So we're worried all the time with the tasks and the busyness and the things. And when our days aren't filled with the task and the busyness and the things and the worry, we're pre-worried and pre-busy. And very, very tired. This is what Henry Nouwen calls the modern life. The modern life which is both filled, filled to the brim, bursting, it's so full, and yet unfulfilled at the same time. He says this. It's a great little quote. I like it. The great paradox of our time is that many of us are busy and bored at the same time. Now that, that, that sounds contradictory, right? It sounds contradictory because how could you be busy and bored at the same time? He explains further, that because boredom isn't just the absence of something, it's the absence of purpose, it's the absence of meaning. You're bored when there's really nothing that's being done, nothing that's happening. And so while we are busy and bored at the same time, why? Because while running from one event to the next, we're spending our time in the innermost part of ourselves wondering, does this really matter at all? Does it really matter at all? And if you really take a long stock at the busyness of your lives and your families and your children's activities and all of these things we're running about to, you might find out that most of it probably isn't that important. That perhaps we have focused our lives on filling it up, but with the most unfulfilling things, which is why we feel so busy and so incomplete. I like it. I do think he's wrong, though, if I get to say such a thing. You know me, and you know I'll say that about anyone. <laughs> right? This is it. I don't think it's a paradox for our time. I think it's the paradox of humankind. 
I don't think this is anything new, that we have the desire to be busy and to fill our lives. God gave us creativity. He gave us purpose. He gave us a desire. There is some reason that every one of us is born, and we wake up at some point, and we say, what's it all about? If there's something to me that at the core kernel says that there is something we call God, it's there. Because we all are wondering. We all want to fill it up with something. But we all want that something we fill our lives up with to have meaning. To have purpose. Paul is speaking to these people and he says, you are filling your time. And you're filling your time with religious things. They're talking about scripture. They're talking about genealogies. They're talking about myths. These are probably all callbacks to things that are happening in the Old Testament. He says, it's not that you're not busy. You're just busy about the things that aren't completing anything meaningful in your life. I love what Paul does because Paul sets up very much here a difference between these two. And you might have found or noticed buried in this is Paul's response to the people he's talking with. Here it is right here. You can see it there in verse 5. Notice he says, he's talking about all the different things that they're busy doing here and all the different things that they're busy doing here. But he says, the aim of our charge. So what are we about? This is why you have to pay very careful attention when you read your scriptures, right? Because sometimes in the middle of it, you'll actually get the thing that Paul is about. Now, they're about all these other things, but Paul is about this. And, of course, he wants Timothy to be about this. And he wants to communicate this to the entire church. This is what you all need to focus on. The aim of our charge, he says, is love. Shocker, right? Never heard that word before, right? This is not entirely surprising to us, but notice that this word aim is, it's kind of a tricky word. It means, it's the, the Greek word there is telos, and telos means kind of the conclusion, the end, the place that you're trying to get to. And so if you think of it maybe like a target, you ever, everybody ever shoot a bow or an arrow? Like bow and arrow, and you shoot at that target, you try to hit the target. The target, Paul says, is love. The target, our aim, our charge, where we are trying to get to, he says, is love. And this is, of course, something that Jesus brought up many, many times, that, that the whole of Scripture is pointing. It can be summarized in this one great big word, love. But that can kind of get tricky because when you bring all of this into one word we call love, we have to also be able to pull it apart again to understand what we mean when we use the word love. But God gave us kind of a shorthand. And that shorthand is not just a word, but a person. Jesus. That when we look upon Jesus, or we ask the question, what does love look like? It looks like Jesus. And the wonderful thing about Jesus is he both comforted and confronted. Right? That's what love does. It both comforts us and it confronts us. It says, you're doing well. Now do better. You've taken one step, now take two, right? I mean, you kind of see that going on in Jesus. And so what is love? Love is a complex thought, but it is brought forward in this one person, and this one person demonstrates his love to us, not only through confronting and comforting, but through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he calls us toward that whole, toward that path as well. So that if we would be like Jesus, we too must aim our lives at love. But in order to hit a target, I don't know if you've ever shot a bow or an arrow or failed to hit a target. When you did shoot that bow or arrow, 
how well that bow is made matters, right? If you don't fire the arrow well, it's not going to, it's not going to land anywhere. Some of you might be um, surprised to know this, but uh, I spent a lot of time in seminary learning how to shoot guns. I had a friend of mine in seminary. He was a former police officer, and he, had tra- he, he was in charge of training some uh, in firearms. So we did lots of, sh- lots of shooting. That was kind of one of the ways we blew off steam uh, when we failed our Greek tests. <laughs> no pictures of professors were ever printed, though. I just want to say that. Um, so anyway, with that, guns misfired, we had bl- you know, things, things had gone wrong, and if you've ever had a gun kind of act weird on you, it's scary, right? It was very scary. And I think that's one of the things that's important to notice about when the Bible uses weapon metaphors, right? Why is it so important to use those metaphors? It uses those metaphors because a weapon is dangerous. It is also helpful, but it is also dangerous. And Paul is saying here, he says, listen, the aim of our, uh, uh, the aim or the target where we are headed is love. But if you fire from a place that is broken, you will miss your target. In fact, I'm fairly convinced that, that this is what we are doing most of the time. It isn't that we are not trying to hit love. We are trying to hit love. The nicest and the meanest people I know in the church are both trying to be loving. They see that as the target, but they fire from a place of brokenness. And if you fire from a place of brokenness, not only will you miss your mark, you're probably going to hit someone in the leg too. And so we need to spend time asking questions of our motivations And this is what Paul does. Notice, isn't that what he does? The aim of our charge is love, but where does it issue from? Where does it come from? Why is it emerging? Because one of the great truths of our time is also this, that we think we are being honest and righteous and biblical, but what we are really doing is wounding people because of our pride, our pet peeves, and our opinions. And everyone around us might look at us and find us tiresome and hurtful. But if you go to church with with somebody for 10 years, you get used to it. You let it go. Or everyone else might might feel that way about you at work. But they're just like, oh, and they shuffle off. And so what's dangerous is that we are often blinded to the fact that we are shooting at love. But we're broken, which is why we miss it. And why it is so important to have people in our lives who say, I see that you're shooting at love. I see that that's your aim. But when you do it, you do it from a place that feels like anger or hate. Because there's something that I've learned very much. I love the Bible and I love to teach the Bible, but I also love being right. (laughs) And sometimes I love being right more than I love just you knowing the truth. And so Paul says, listen, if you're going to shoot an arrow at love, if you're going to be like me, then it has to emerge from a pure heart. And we talked about this last week, the complexity of this word heart, that it means inner person, emotion, will, thought, our desire, where you're going, where is your energy taking you? It has to emerge. If you want to have, if you want to truly hit love, it has to come out of that pure heart. We have to stop and to think about our intentions because as I just said, our intentions are rarely as pure as we think they are. Are you really just concerned about this person? Do you really just want them to know God better and come to the truth? 
It also has to fire from a good conscience. We cannot be hypocrites and expect people to listen to us. And this isn't to say that we're perfect because we aren't. In fact, we all here are hypocritical in some way. There is some dividedness in our life. And so I'm not asking you to become perfect. Paul isn't saying you need to be perfect before you say anything, before you do anything. He's saying, listen, is your conscience right with God? Is it truly love that motivates you? Is it coming and emerging from this? Because Jesus had the harshest words for the most religious people. He said that those people who use God as a smokescreen for their own bitterness and rivalry and desire to be right, their own pride and and ambition, he says for those people they fulfill the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah who said this, you honor me with your lips. You say all of the right words, but what's driving you is not what's driving me. What's making you say or do these things is not what's driving me. Like We have fundamentally different motivations. And listen, your motivations affect your outcomes. They affect the outcome. So we need to be careful, especially those of us who are religious people, to make sure that not only is our, our actions coming from a pure heart, but they're coming from a good conscience, and that they are also emerging from a sincere faith. Now we could talk, uh, you know, where I appear, <laughs> where Paul went, I'd write an 800-page book about what it means to have a sincere faith. Like, that's a big thing. But let's just say, is it real for you? Have we really repented? Have we really turned toward Jesus? Have we really set God as the thing in our life? Are we really busy trying to smash and tear down the idols that continually step up and step step up in between us and God? Are we really, really speaking from this place? And I love this litany. I love this little, it, 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 it's like a nice three. If you were smart, you'd make a sermon about it, right? It just kind of plays really nice. And I love that Paul is using this towards these people who seem to be his enemies, or at least the rival positions. They're having a dispute within the church. They're two positions, two people, two leaders in the church, and they're standing up and they're saying, this way, and one says, no, this way. And so there's something very hard that is going on here, and I like that this points toward how much all of this matters. This is not a light thing. We are talking about the things that have eternal consequences. And one of the things that I've noticed about us as we think how important it is, because we have been given a a message of such urgency We talk about missions and evangelism and outreach and going into all the world and how important all those things are. And that urgency is there and it's important. And we need to grab a hold of it. But I often find Christians trying to wrestle from God the truth that is he's still in control of time. He is still moving at his unhurried pace. He is still moving at the steps that we are taking and that we can take. And he is still being patient with us. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he's teaching about prayer, says there are people who think if they say the right words, God will hear them. But I tell you, God hears you. Isn't that comforting? Like, 
you don't have to have the perfect. If you, if you hiccup and, and you like, you're, like, you're, you're choppy and wooden, you're like, do I even know English? Why? I'm like, hey, you pray right. God hears you. God has you. He holds you. In fact, it's interesting that right after that prayer bit, he eventually gets to anxiety and worries. Like, why are you anxious about what you eat and what you wear and where you're going? Why are you worried? Like, birds are out there. Birds. God takes care of them. Why are you, why are you so concerned? Put your trust in him. And I love, I love that Paul is doing this in the center of a controversy where he says, I am not writing these people off. I'm sending you, Timothy, to step up and to walk with them. That's grace. He doesn't come down like the bishop from on high and say, there it is, tell them to get in line or get out. He says, step in there and begin to walk with them and lead them and love them toward, help them to understand that they're focusing on the wrong things and get them back toward the things that matter most. Get them back toward the gospel. But Paul doesn't leave himself out of this. He, in fact, brings himself into this. He, a few verses later, tells his own story. So this is verses 12 through, 7, uh, 12 through 16. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow along or just look up here. Paul says this about his own journey. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So that saying, or this saying, is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. Write this down, guys. Underline it if you have your Bibles. Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? Say it. Say it. We're going to be charismatic for a moment. Don't make me make you stand up and say it. Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? Of whom what? All of you say it. Just say it. I'm the foremost. Because Paul says it. And I've never killed anyone, but I have a hard time believing it because my conscience accuses me just like his conscience accuses his. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he says that this is a word. In fact, the way the, the, we, we actually make it more complicated in English than it is in Greek. This is the saying, right? <laughs> Which means that it's something that people were saying, right? Paul is leaning in on something that people had, had learned. Maybe it's a, what we call this a maxim or a proverb, something that kind of got tossed around the church. Like, what would Jesus do? Or WWJD, everybody kind of, if you grew up in the church, you might know what that means, right? This is just a saying they're throwing around. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Paul says, adds his own addition to it, possibly, maybe this is part of it too, but I am the foremost. And of the foremost, what? The worst sinner in the world. What is God's disposition toward the worst sinner in the world? If we take Paul at his word, it is this. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now think about that for a second and how beautiful that is. 
Literally, he is saying in many ways, God preserved me. He allowed, he watched me hurt his people because he loved me so much. He knew if he stepped in, I would be lost. So he patiently waited. Right? He came to save sinners. I was the worst of those sinners. And you have to wonder, Paul, Paul talks about this Often He kind of tells about his story and about how he persecuted Christians. And that is just wild to me. Because let's just say, let's just say, say that um, you know, when I join the Area 51 invasion here in a few weeks, I disappear. I'm gone, right? So you all need to find somebody else to preach. And you put things out there and you get a resume in. And one of the resumes is from a former lieutenant in ISIS who spent his time executing Christians on behalf of ISIS. Do you hire him? He's converted. He loves Jesus. His testimony is killer. <laughs> we would have a hard time with that. I would have a hard, we would have a hard time with that, wouldn't we? Paul puts it out here right now. He says, listen, I was the one who was killing you. And Jesus saved me so you could see how far his grace extends. Because almost all of us in this room are self-righteous enough to believe we're better than the ISIS guys killing Christians. You probably aren't. But we all feel like we are. And Paul says, listen, it goes farther than you are prepared to go. And that is fundamentally So I like it. I like it. I like this last line too, because I feel like it could be used probably for me and for you and for all of us. I received mercy. I received mercy that Jesus Christ might display what? His patience. His patience. Because we can say God is love all day long, but that word love means a lot of things to a lot of people. It gets a little messy. And let's say this, God is patient with you. He is unhurried in his love for you. He is willing to let you, like a child, kick and fight and throw fits and resist. And he comes back into your room after you've been screaming for a couple of minutes and tries to pick you up again. And if I've learned anything about two-year-olds, that's going to take three or four more times. But ultimately, that's the goal. Our aim is love. But we have to fire from a place that is standing well with a strong faith, with a good conscience, and a pure heart, because that is how God gets to us, right? That's how he gets to us. And if you think about firing from that place and you think about hitting love, if you think about the arrow that is actually the direction, the way that we get to love, isn't it demonstrated here as this? The way to love is patience. The way to love is sticking it out. The way to love is remembering what we said last week, not to just jump into a complete vat of redundancy, but Exactly what I said last week, that we need to understand that God is patient. He is kind and compassionate. He is slow to anger. 
He is abounding in love. The words from Jesus' mouth to Nicodemus, who had spent his life as a Pharisee, and assuming he was kind of like the average Pharisee, had spent his life looking down his nose at everyone who didn't live up to his high moral expectations. And Jesus steps aside with him. We're used to this whole, you know, God loved the world and all this stuff. But I want you to notice that Jesus says first to him, I did not come here to judge. I came here to save. came to save and if if he is a God of patience and he's the God who came to save and we can recognize that and we can see it shouldn't we then appropriate it and give ourselves permission to be in process and unhurried as well and if God can offer us such grace doesn't it just follow that we have to offer such grace to others as well. Yeah? And so the conclusion or the message, what I want to leave you with is all that I've talked about, but, but essentially this, to recognize the unhurried nature of God. And if you just step back and look and ponder your life for five minutes and think about all the places God showed up, when you didn't expect him to show up, you'll recognize, hey man, God has just been so good to me. And then what I want to challenge you to do is to let that goodness take over your heart and flow from you. Let's stand as we sing praise to the God of patience, the God of love, the God who saves.